Welcome back to another episode of Revealed Apologetics. I'm your host, Eli Ayala, and um, it honestly feels like I haven't been live in a while. Um, I don't remember the last time I did it. Maybe it was uh, a week ago or maybe two weeks. I'm not sure. Um, but um, I'm happy to be on. Uh, as you guys know, I'm a very busy guy, um, and so I don't always have uh, the opportunity to come on as, as often as I'd like, but um, I have a, a really great guest on his way. He's scheduled for Saturday at 1 p.m., and I'm looking forward to that. We're going to be covering an interesting topic that I think uh, folks are going to find very fascinating, especially those who are into the whole um, presuppositional methodology, the, the different methodologies um, under the umbrella of presuppositionalism. So we're going to, we're going to be covering a very interesting um, uh, topic, and that's the, the topic of the philosophy and apologetic methodology of Gordon H. Clark. Okay. Now, I always, um, when I have the opportunity, I always recommend folks uh, read Gordon Clark. Okay. Now, he is labeled as a presuppositionalist. Um, I do not follow his stream of thought, but there is a lot in his writings that are extremely helpful. Um, you will find uh, a, a big difference between reading someone like Gordon Clark and reading someone like Cornelius Van Til. Uh, Gordon Clark is. Very, very refreshing, very clear, um, very logical in his structure, easy to follow. Um, and so I highly, highly, highly recommend reading uh, the works of Gordon Clark. Here's a, um, a book by Dr. Clark. Uh, this is a, a, a book that he's well known for. It is entitled A Christian View of Men and Things. Uh, so definitely a good read. Um, if if you're a presuppositionalist, more along the Van Tillian lines, and you, you obviously you know, take issue with some of the points of, of Dr. Clark, you do have to appreciate his critiques of um, various unbelieving philosophies. So if anything, you'll find his critiques and analysis of the history of philosophy very, very helpful. So this is The Christian View of Men and Things, very good book. And of course, Gordon Clark's philosophical masterpiece, in my opinion, um, is his, his textbook on uh, philosophy. And this, uh, this guy here is called Thales to Dewey's. Let me get the camera there. Thales to Dewey's. You can purchase this on Amazon, I think. Um, and um, it is basically just a history of philosophy with, of course, um, a Christian uh, analysis of the different philosophical perspectives. So definitely a very, very worthy read. Um, and those of you, of course, who are interested in presuppositional apologetics, I have to highly recommend the works of John Frame, uh, Cornelius Van Til, An Analysis of His Thought, um, also a very good book. And um, Apologetics to the Glory of God, which was uh, had a, a more technical title, and I think this is the more updated version, Apologetics, A Justification of Christian Belief. Um, so another highly recommended book. And my favorite apologetics book ever. Okay, this is my, this is my top book for Christian apologetics that I highly recommend everyone, if you're watching now, open up a window, go on Amazon and order this book right now. It is the best apologetics book that I ever read. And that is Classical Apologetics by R.C. Sproul. <laughs> I'm just kidding. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. All right. Uh, for those of you who, who know uh, the debates within apologetic methodology between Reformed brothers, especially uh, someone like Greg Bonson, who was a presuppositionalist, and an R.C. Sproul, who was a... Um, uh, a classicalist. Uh, this is um, the book that uh, Sproul wrote together with um, John Gerstner and Arthur Lindsay. Um, 
defending the classical uh, synthesis and offering on the second half of the book a critique of presuppositional apologetics. So it's definitely not um, a fan favorite amongst presuppositionalists. But if anything, if you want to know what are some of the common objections against presuppositional apologetics, I think this is a good book to uh, to dive into. Um, I, I have criticisms um, and there have been reviews written. Uh, presuppositionalists who are much more able than I have offered a great critique of, of this uh, work. Greg Bonson has critiqued this work as well. Um, but it's good to have. It's good to have. Okay. It's old too. I, I didn't order this. Actually, I stole this from a friend's library. He was giving away books. So I snatched this one up. Um, actually, my favorite apologetics book is uh, Van Til's Apologetic by Greg Bonson. And this is his largest work where he offers some critique of, uh, not critique, I'm sorry, commentary of um, the, um, the work of Cornelius Van Til. So excellent book, Van Til's Apologetic Readings and Analysis. Well, um, if you are joining me now, I see there are a couple of people watching. Uh, the um, the title of this video is, uh, well, what is the title of this video? Uh, is Frank Turek correct about presuppositionalism? Now, let me first start off by saying a couple of things about uh, Dr. Turek, okay? Dr. Turek is, uh, is an, a Christian apologist over there at um, Cross Examined, and um, I've actually had Dr. Turek on my show. Uh, it was... Um, an excellent show. He's an awesome guy, uh, super generous, and he is he's quite intelligent. Um, before I offer my critiques, and um, don't be um, don't be thrown off of the thumbnail of this video. It seems as though I'm going to go in and kind of you know uh, be snarky towards him. I would never. Um, I was told when you are doing YouTube videos to have catchy thumbnail. So, so perhaps I, my, I, my personality is much more nicer than what the thumbnail uh, seems to imply. Um, but um, I highly recommend Dr. Turek. And I'm going to say this as a hardcore presuppositionalist. Um, Dr. Turek's most well-known book is, um, I don't have enough faith to be an atheist. Okay. Now I own the book in my, uh, digital format, but I don't own the book in physical uh, format because I've given it away to so many people. I think I've or I think I've owned the physical copy of I don't have enough faith to be an atheist. I've owned it three different times and three different times I gave it away to someone who I thought needed it. Okay. Now that's coming from a presuppositionalist. Now here's what uh, I think is going to be very helpful for people who are die in the world presuppositionalist. Okay. Just because we differ in apologetic methodology with our classical and evidentialist brothers does not mean that they don't have anything valuable to say, okay? When we're talking about specific evidences and arguments for, say, the resurrection of Jesus or, um, you know, arguments for, for God's existence, um, it's a good resource. And so, I, and it's written in a way that's easy to follow and easy to understand. There's some great quotes in there, um, very helpful footnotes. And so um, I encourage fellow presuppositionalists to be widely read uh, throughout the apologetic tradition. I mean, I'm not a classicalist, but I tried my best to read um, William Lane Craig. I tried my best to read uh, someone like Dr. Turek, especially his book, Stealing from God, which is very, very um, presuppositional-ish, okay? Um, I, I, I kind of joked around. I, I, the, the title of the book should have, should have been Stealing from Bonson, but I, I'm completely kidding. There's a lot of useful things in that book. And I think Dr. Turek does an excellent job breaking it down for uh, just the everyday person, maybe the high school student or the college student who might confront various objections. So super, super helpful. Uh, this critique is offered with respect. 
Um, he, I consider him my older brother in Christ, and um, he's a very generous guy, and um, I highly respect him and highly recommend um, his resources, little video clips and things like that. Um, so with that said, I want to actually begin uh, this episode uh, with reading a text from Scripture. So I'm actually going to be reading from Hebrews chapter 6, verses, uh, verse 13, okay? Hebrews 6, 13. All right. Now I know this is an, uh, you know the 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 habit of apologetic YouTube channel. They tend to cater to the uh, the general crowd, so you don't usually see someone you know have a Bible open. And um, but um, I don't care. I'm a biblical apologist. I'm defending the Christian worldview, and I have no qualms about reading my Bible. I have my physical Bible, right? I have too many windows open on my computer to flummox through. And read. but um, I want to read here through Hebrews chapter six, verse thirteen. Here's what it says. For when God made the promise to Abraham, since he could swear by no one greater, he swore by himself, saying, I will surely bless and uh, bless you, and I will surely multiply you. Okay. Now, the, the thing that I think is particularly interesting here, and will come up later on as I offer uh, the critique, is that God could not swear by anyone greater than himself. Okay. That is a very important um, concept in scripture, that there is no one higher than God. Okay, and so God is the supreme. He is the absolute. He is the um, the ultimate authority within the believer's worldview. And so this is going to be very, very important, especially when we have discussions with um, other Christians regarding apologetic methodology. We get down to that fundamental question of what is our ultimate authority? And when we profess what our ultimate authority is, are we defending the faith in such a way that respects that ultimate authority and keeps it in its proper uh, place. That's going to be very, very important because as if you guys follow Dr. Uh, James White's channel, The Dividing Line, he, he talks about this a lot. Um, and I agree with him. This issue of consistency, right? The manner in which we defend the faith needs to be consistent with that very faith that we are defending. And so we want to make sure that our defending the faith keeps into consideration the role of the authority of God the author and the authority of the word of God. So I just wanted you guys to keep that in mind. Hebrews 6, 13, good verse to keep in mind and uh, put that into perspective. Of course, there are other verses as well. All right. Well, um, before I actually um, invite Dr. Turek on, he's not physically here, but we'll add him to the screen there and then we'll play uh, the, the video. Um, I want to uh, just really um, quickly remind folks that if you are looking forward to my interview with uh, Doug Dauma, who will be uh, the, the gentleman that I'll have on Saturday to talk about the philosophy of, of um, Gordon Clark. You might want to check out his book. He's got a book, um, and I think, to my knowledge, it is the only biography written about Gordon Clark. It's called The Presbyterian Philosopher, The Authorized Biography of Gordon Clark. I read it. It is excellent. Uh, again, even if you disagree with Gordon Clark, it is an excellent book. It goes through his philosophy and, of course, an interesting history of the Presbyterian denomination. So you guys definitely want to uh, um, uh, take a look at that. Okay. All right. So let's get started. Um, as a precursor, this footage here is from a question and answer. So I want to uh, highlight that. It is not as though Dr. Turek is going into an in-depth analysis of presuppositionalism and um, uh, apologetic methodology. Um, so it is a Q&A. 
And so I would imagine his answer would not be as precise as it needs to be if he is going to interact with a presuppositional methodology in, in more depth. So I want you guys to keep that in mind. I wanted to let you guys know that. All right. So let me play this. We're going to actually play the whole thing. And then we're going to go back and address various points. All right. So let me do that. And you guys can give me a thumbs up if you hear the audio. I don't want to uh, play this and you guys can't hear it. So ready. So to say that you need the Bible in order to get anybody to become saved would negate all the writers of the Bible. There's a lot of debate among Christians as to like which method of apologetics is the best. You have like the classical evidentialist uh -huh. approach, and then you also have the presuppositionalist approach. Yes. And you tend to come from more of a, like an evidentialist approach. And so I was classical. Yeah. And so I was wondering, what is your opinion on presuppositional apologetics, and why do you come from more of a classical perspective? First of all, I was taught by Norman Geisler, who is the Michael Jordan, sorry, the Kobe Bryant, or the Steph Curry, or whoever you want to use. Michael Jordan's my generation. Uh, of the classical approach. And I think it makes more sense. The problem I have with presuppositionalism, if I understand it, maybe I'm misunderstanding it, but it's circular because it says in order for you to show the Bible's true, you have to assume it's true. How does that make any sense? Right? Um, now, I do agree that there are certain presuppositions we all have, like the laws of logic, and that's why the book Stealing from God says that when somebody is trying to suggest there's no God, they're actually stealing from God to argue against him because logic and reason wouldn't exist unless there's a mind out there that is endowed reality with those things. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And that's why I think to a degree, it's almost like two sides of the same coin, like what we're both saying, except I think with the evidentialist approach, you're kind of starting with neutrality and saying like, you can, you know, if you're a non-believer, like you can reason like in a neutral standpoint. Mm -hmm. And what I think the presuppositionists are saying is like with Romans chapter one, you know, we suppress the truth and unrighteousness. And so like, if we're just throwing facts at people that are non-believers, it's in our sinful nature to reject those things. And so you have to start with the Bible to be able to understand laws of logic. And let me, let me point like out that. one thing. There were, there were thousands of Christians before the Bible was ever written. So right. to say that you need the Bible in order to get anybody to become saved would negate all the writers of the Bible. Yeah. I guess I should say start with God. But yeah. Well, that's what Paul does. He starts with God on, on Mars Hill in Acts 17. And he says, uh, I see you have an altar to an unknown God here. Let me tell you who that unknown God is. But the presuppositional assertion that you have to assume the Bible's true in order to, to prove it just seems so circular to me. Now, again. Maybe I'm missing something, but I think Jesus was an evidentialist. How do I know? Because when a representative of John the Baptist came to him and said, are you the real Messiah or should we wait for somebody else? Jesus didn't say, well, just have faith, just believe. What did he say? Look at the signs, look at the evidence. Yeah. Yeah, I am the Messiah. All right. Thank you. All right. Thank you. All right. Okay. There's a lot there. <laughs> okay. Um, let's, let's start with, hmm, where, where, where shall I start? Um, let's start with the claim that presuppositionalism is circular. And we've heard this before, right? This is not, um, uh, a surprise, right? I mean, I, and again, one of the indicators that I know, um, that someone does not understand 
presuppositionalism. And this is one of the key, when someone says this, this is one of the key things that, that, that pops in my head to let me know that the person is not really getting what presuppositionalism is trying to argue. And that's when the person claims that the problem with presuppositionalism is that it's circular. As though that claim that it is circular, and not just circular in a specific sense, it's circular actually in the fallacious sense, which is the indication here uh, by Dr. Turek and other people who suggest that one of the, the flaws of presuppositional methodology is that it's um, circular. But, but again, this shows a complete lack of understanding of the nature of a presuppositionalism in particular and the nature of rational argumentation in general. Okay, but let's deal with this issue of circularity. Okay, uh, this was no surprise to Cornelius Van Til. Uh, Dr. Van Til did not recoil at the accusation that um, the presuppositional form of argumentation was circular, but of course, he most definitely clarified uh, the sort of circle that he had in mind. So here's a quote from uh, Dr. Van Til. He says, quote, the charge is made that we engage in circular reasoning. Now, if it be called circular reasoning, when we hold when we hold it necessary to presuppose God, we are not ashamed of it because we are firmly convinced that all forms of reasoning that leave God out of account will end in ruin. Check this out, though. Yet we hold that our reasoning cannot fairly be called circular reasoning or begging the question, which is what Dr. Turek is um, having issue here, because we're not reasoning about and seeking to explain facts by assuming the existence and meaning of certain other facts on the same level of being with the facts we are investigating, and then explaining these facts in turn by the facts with which we began. We are presupposing God, not merely as another fact of the universe, okay? Now, this is really important, okay? Before I kind of go a little further, okay? When we presuppose God, we are not presupposing God as a simple fact of the universe, reasoning from one fact to another. Because the fact of God is a specific kind of fact that is quite special. Because unlike one fact that gives an account and makes a connection with another fact, the fact of God, because of his nature, now think of Hebrews 6, uh, 13, what I read before, the kind of fact that God is, is the sort of fact that gives meaning to facts. Okay? That remember, I, I said that, that God cannot swear by anyone higher than himself. I read that portion of scripture on purpose to draw your attention to the fact that God is the ultimate foundation. He's the criterion. Him and his revelation is the criterion of truth itself. And so when we're arguing about God, we are not arguing about just another fact of the universe. That's really, really important uh, to keep in mind uh, because when we're dealing with issues of ultimacy, of course, it's going to be to a certain degree circular, but there are fallacious circle. The Bible's true because the Bible's true. And then there are circles that are fundamentally necessary given the nature of ultimate authorities. Okay. An example of the begging the question um, fallacy, which is being asserted here. Let's suppose we say that the Bible claims to be the word of God, right? And whatever the Bible claims is true. Therefore, the Bible is the word of God. That is fallacious. And that is by no means the nature of the presuppositional argument, right? This is obviously fallacious since the opponent of the Christian faith is not going to accept the second premise, namely that whatever the Bible claims is, is true. Okay. Now, in another sense, it is true that for any argument for God's existence or the truth of the Bible must also presuppose God's existence and the truth of scripture. I would, I would affirm that. Now, this must be the case 
because of the very nature of God and scripture as being an ultimate criterion of truth. You got to understand, we make this creator-creature distinction, and when we're arguing about God, it is not simply appeals to one fact and another fact. We're talking about the foundation of fact itself. We do not demonstrate the existence of the ultimate God who is himself the ground and foundation for proof itself by appealing to some other more fundamental foundation. Think about it. If the truthfulness of our ultimate standard of truth, God's revelation and God, if that could be established on the basis of some other standard of truth, then God and his revelation would not be the ultimate standard of truth, would it? Right? So, so, so such an argument would actually disprove the argument that God and his revelation is in fact the ultimate standard that is demonstrated, as we would say, transcendentally. Okay, so so uh, this is very, very important. We're, we're not saying uh, we're, we're in, in essence, what we're saying is that if we had to prove God's existence by appealing to something more ultimate and authoritative than him, then we're refuting ourselves. You see, that's why when someone asks me, I was in a debate. Um, I, I don't remember who I was debating. I don't know if it was Tom Jump or um, there was a gentleman by the name of negation of P. Uh, it was a debate on modern day debates um, on the existence of God. I think it was, is Christianity true? Um, I, I think he asked me, is it possible, is it possible that Christianity is false, right? Is it possible that God does not exist? And my answer to him was, no, it's not possible. Ah, it was Eric Murphy. Okay, I remember him. I had a debate with Eric Murphy. Uh, uh, I think he was on the Talk Heathen show. I think it's a sister uh, podcast to the Atheist Experience. It was, it's entitled Respectful Dialogue with an Atheist, if you want to check it out on, on my channel. Um, and he asked me, is it possible for me to be wrong about God? And, and I told him no. Now, he kind of got bent out of shape because of that, but, but think about it. If I were to say that it's possible that the Christian worldview is false— then how could I then argue that the Christian worldview is the necessary precondition for intelligible experience, right? If that's my argument, how could I place something like contingency and possibility over my ultimate foundation? You see, when you say that it's possible for the Christian worldview to be false, you are placing contingency and possibility in a more ultimate place than God himself. And hence, contingency is your ultimate authority, because it stands over and above God. From the Christian perspective, and from the perspective that is consistent with um, Hebrews 6.13, where God says, I, 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 you know, he's, there was no one greater uh, to him that he could swear by. Um, within the Christian conception, contingency and possibility does not stand over God. For God as the ultimate within the Christian worldview what is possible and what is impossible is defined by God. And so the God of Scripture stands over possibility and contingency. You, you see? Um, and if God holds that sort of authority, to what can I appeal to that is more fundamental than that? That's why us presuppositionalists, we say that the authority of God is self-attesting. It is self-attesting in that it cannot be validated by an appeal to something external to it and more fundamental than it. And in that sense, of course, it's going to be circular. So to say that it's circular in that fallacious sense is to have a complete misunderstanding of the methodology and a complete understanding as to how reasoning works with regards to our ultimate intellectual commitments. Okay. Now, 
in defense of Dr. Turek, he did say with humility, and this is what I res respect about Dr. Turk. He says it's circular. He says, but it, I, if I'm correct, if I'm understanding this correctly, and I and I'm and I'm happy he said that because that leaves room for uh, fruitful interaction to kind of interact and and, and explain uh, explain more clearly what we mean by this, that, or the other thing. Okay, all right. So uh, just real quick, as I continue on, I want to uh, replay the video and stop at certain points. Uh, but if you have any questions, please uh, put them in on the uh, in the chat, and I will try my best towards the end to get to them. If you can label it questions, so that I can differentiate that between the many comments that are going on. You know, sometimes in the comment section, people are having their own separate debates, so I have to scroll through. So if you label it, don't point me to a pre. If you have a question you know, send it in. I'll try my best to get to it. Okay. So let us again, begin from the beginning. And then I'm going to stop at some strategic points here. So right. to say that you need the Bible in order to get anybody to become saved would negate all the writers of the Bible. There's a lot of debate among Christians as to like, which method of apologetics is the best. You have like the classical evidentialist uh -huh. approach, and then you also have the presuppositionalist approach. Yes. And you tend to come from more of a, like an evidentialist approach. And so I was classical. Yeah. And so I was wondering, what is your opinion on presuppositional apologetics and why do you come from more of a classical perspective? First of all, I was taught by Norman Geisler, who is the Michael Jordan, sorry, the Kobe Bryant or the Steph Curry or whoever you want to use. Michael Jordan's my generation. Uh, of the classical approach. And I think it makes more sense. The problem I have with presuppositionalism, if I understand it, maybe I'm misunderstanding it, but it's circular because it says in order for you to show the Bible's true, you have to assume it's true. How does that make any sense? And we just explained how that makes sense. Okay. When we differentiate um, you know, uh, the nature of ultimate authority. So, so when Frank says in, in order to prove the Bible's true, you need to assume that the Bible is true. I, I would even, um, adjust that. I think that's a very simplistic way of, of putting it. Um, and again, this is a Q and a, I, I don't expect him to, uh, to go into, you know, a vast amount of detail, but I would even go as far to say, uh, to, to make a more robust and more bold claim that unless the worldview put forth in scripture is true, then one couldn't prove anything at all much less the Bible true, without the worldview of scripture, you couldn't prove anything at all. Now, you know, those of you who might have an issue with me saying that, that's just the transcendental claim, right? <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not saying anything that's different than what, what I would say when I'm arguing a transcendental argument for the Christian worldview, okay? And, and an interesting thing is that the biblical worldview also encapsulates the notion that all men know the God of the Bible, right? Um, again, there are different views out there, and I know that um, uh, Dr. Turk comes from a more Thomistic understanding. I don't know what he holds with regards to the knowledge of God if it is um, if the knowledge of God is apprehended immediately through the created order or immediately, kind of we know it inherent given our own human constitution or a little bit of both. I don't know where he stands, um, but to my understanding, I think he holds the immediate view uh, when that's why natural theology comes into the picture. But the biblical worldview um, encapsulates the notion that all men know the God of the Bible. And this, this is important. And this was true even before the Bible was written, since the world was never deprived of God's self-revelation. God has been revealing himself from the beginning. And that revelation is not just through the created order externally. It is also revealed to man within his own constitution. And that's why in Romans 1, we're told man is without 
and, and apologetic. He's without an excuse. So for instance, the truth of Romans 1 did not become true once Roman, Romans 1 was penned. Rather, Romans 1 was written, or rather, Romans 1, it was a written form of a truth that was true in light of the fact that man was created as the imago Dei, as the image of God. And it is because all men are the image of God that he knows God, okay? And this knowledge of God is constitutional. It is within his very being. I would argue that man's con the consciousness of self is simultaneous with the consciousness of God, such that when man is conscious of himself, he is in direct con contact, uh, contact sorry, with his creator, but because of the entrance of sin into the picture, this knowledge that all men have is suppressed as per Romans chapter one. Now, this knowledge of God is not simply ascertained by observation. Okay, well, I would agree. The heavens declare the glory of God. Um, when we speak of, of the knowledge of God through the created order externally, that is mediate knowledge. Mediate. It is mediated through the created order. Okay, so this knowledge of God is not simply ascertained by observation of the created order, immediate knowledge, but as the imago Dei, as the image of God, this knowledge is known immediately in light of the fact that man is conscious. He's knowing God is simply part of the constitution of man. And because we live and move and have our being in him, man lives quorum Dei, before the face of God. God is the atmosphere. He is the atmosphere in which man exists, okay? So I think this is a very important key thing to keep in mind. Uh, the, the, the very surface level critique, which, which, I'm, which I'm completely fine with because it's a Q&A. I don't expect them to go in deeper. There is a lot more to unpack here. And there's a lot of, um, dare I say, presuppositions that go into such a, a surface understanding of the issue. But again, it's a Q&A. I want to give Dr. Turk the benefit of the doubt. Okay, so let's let's continue. Right um, now, I do agree that there are certain presuppositions we all have, like the laws of logic. Okay, I'm going to stop right here. Okay, so now here's an interesting thing. Okay, I see a lot of people do this when they desire to throw a bone to the presuppositionalist. So we punch you in the gut. We say, "Oh, it's circular," but they're correct um, about the nature of presuppositions. Okay, now I'm not saying he's doing that, but. Um, People often uh, do this as though it's kind of like, yeah, I'm kind of jiving a little bit with the presuppositionalist. But let me tell you something. Um, the idea that we all have presuppositions is not an insight made by presuppositionalists. Okay, that's not it's not an essential feature uh, or it is an essential feature, but it's not a um, something that was pointed out by presuppositionalists. We all recognize that we have presuppositions and that presuppositions inform the way we interpret reality and things like that. The real question is, are our presuppositions correct? Can we demonstrate the truth of our presuppositions? Okay. If our presuppositions govern our interpretation of reality, how do we know that our, our, our presuppositions are correct? And what grounds those presuppositions? Okay. Um, and, and there's a common misunderstanding. Um, and in my discussion with, with the atheist Tom Jump, um, he, he seemed to have this understanding that a presupposition by definition cannot be demonstrated because it's your, it's your presupposition, right? There's nothing more foundational than that. Um, and this seems to be a common misconception uh, by folks. While it is true that presuppositions are not demonstrated by an appeal to something more fundamental than, than, than the presupposition itself, 
You can demonstrate the truth of a presupposition by demonstrating its transcendental necessity. And that's precisely what the transcendental argument seeks to do. And, and, and perhaps we'll get into this in my discussion with uh, Douglas Dauma um, on the topic of Gordon Clark. Uh, Gordon Clark, as a presuppositionalist, held to axioms. He said that his axiom is the word of God. And an axiom is a fundamental starting point. And by definition, axioms cannot be demonstrated to be true. They're just accepted and you build a system from that. Okay. Now, when you build the system from that, you know, you judge the, 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 the value of that system based on its consistency. And so Gordon Clark argued the Christian worldview was beautifully consistent and that it is quite simple to show the inconsistencies in these other worldview systems. Van Til, Greg Bonson, and the presuppositionalists that, that, that I would follow and people along this line um, wouldn't argue in that fashion. We wouldn't say that our foundation is axiomatic in the sense that it's impossible to demonstrate it. Because that would be a sort of fideism, okay? All right? There's the, the popular claim. R.C. Sproul made this claim against the presuppositional methodology that presuppositionalism is fideism. It's not, okay? Gordon Clark's apologetic was a sort of fideism, and, and it seemed to be. I'm not a Clark, Clarkian scholar, but it seemed that Clark didn't even have a problem with being called a fideist. But Van Til and the word fideism do not match, okay? Because unlike Clark and unlike other fideists, Cornelius Van Til and Greg Bonson believed that the Christian worldview is objectively provable. It is not just an appeal to an authority, and that's it. As you saw, as you, and that seemed to be hinted at when um, Dr. Turek said something towards the end, which we'll which we'll get to with regards to um, why he thinks uh, Jesus was an evidentialist, okay? Uh, we'll, we'll save it for, for just a few moments. But, th but these things are super important to understand. There's a lot more to unpack. Again, in the defense of Dr. Turek, this is just a quick Q&A. Um, but let us, uh, let us continue. All right. Yeah. And that's why the book Stealing from God says that when somebody is trying to suggest there's no God, they're actually stealing from God to argue against him because logic and reason wouldn't exist unless there's a mind out there that is endowed reality with those things. Mm -hmm. Okay. Actually, I want to, let me play it a couple more. Yeah. And that's why I think to a degree, it's almost like two sides of the same coin, like what we're both saying, except I think with the evidentialist approach, you're kind of starting with neutrality and saying like, you can, you know, if you're a non-believer, like you can reason like in a neutral standpoint. Mm -hmm. And what I think the presuppositionists are saying is like with Romans chapter one, you know, we suppress the truth and unrighteousness. And so like, if we're just throwing facts at people that are non-believers, it's in our sinful nature to reject those things. And so you have to start with the Bible to be able to understand laws of logic. And let me, let me point like out that. one thing. There were, there were thousands of Christians before the Bible was ever written. So to say that you need the Bible in order to get anybody to become saved would negate all the writers of the Bible. Yeah. I guess I should say start with God. But yeah. Well, okay, let's let's stop there real quick. Uh, let me click through here. Bleep, bleep, bloop. Bleep, bleep. All right. Okay, so um, the questioner actually is on to something uh, because I think he is touching on, a, on an issue that is actually implicitly assumed, it's presupposed within um, Frank Turek's apologetic methodology and the methodology of many of our classical uh, brothers. And that is the assumption of autonomy 
and neutrality with regards to man's ability to acquire knowledge, right? Uh, so we walk them through, we say, hey, you, you know, we can show you God exists without appealing to revelation, right? That is an assumed neutrality. That's a neutral approach. It presupposes autonomous reasoning. Now, there are the twin poisons, twin intellectual poisons that presuppositionalists um, talk about ad nauseum that I think is correct, that we need to recognize. And that is the, the twin poisons of neutrality and autonomous reasoning, which I think um, the questioner is actually spot on. Um, and so, but again, there's, there's more to be fleshed out there, um, obviously, but um, neutrality. This idea of neutrality is a very, very um, uh, important aspect of some of these more traditional methodologies. And that's not to say that the classicalist says, I want to be neutral. It's not necessarily the case that the classical is saying, yes, I want to be neutral and I want to assume the, uh, the autonomy of human reasoning. Some people do that, but not all of them. Okay. But what Van Til tried to point out and what Dr. Bonson tried to point out, that is if you don't want to assume autonomy and neutrality in your apologetic methodology, you need to be careful that it doesn't secretly sneak in to your methodology. And I think that's the case here. Let's talk a little bit about neutrality for a moment. We like to call it, as, as presuppositionalists, the myth of neutrality. The myth of neutrality is, pardon, um, the mistaken notion that one can approach the question of God's existence in an unbiased fashion, right? In a no one knows as of yet sort of mindset, okay? A neutral approach to apologetics grants the unbeliever's position that he is ignorant of God and that all he needs is to follow the evidence wherever it leads. You guys have heard this in a lot of the classicalist sort of debates. And it's quite possible, however improbable, that the evidence can lead away from God. Okay, now I would imagine Dr. Turek does not believe that the evidence will point away, but in principle, it could point away, okay, because we are neutral, we are autonomous, and, you know, people come to different conclusions. Now, in essence, the neutral apologist will maintain that there are good, independent, unbiased reasons that can lead you to the conclusion that God exists. You've heard this phraseology, but again, if you're a classical apologist and you don't use that phraseology, then great. If the shoe doesn't fit, don't wear it, right? But um, but some people do say that, and this is an issue that needs to be addressed. Now, to not adopt a neutral and open-minded approach uh, for many is to really commit oneself to what many deem as an unreasonable form of dogmatism, right? We need to be open-minded. We need to be neutral and autonomous in this regard. Indeed, it is a sign of philosophical immaturity, we'd be told, to be positive and dogmatic on any subject. We must be open-minded and untainted by the mythical notion of certainty and allow the noble engine of doubt to guide and, and lead our inquiries as, you know, obviously not that dramatic. But when the apologist adopts a neutral approach in uh, presenting his or her case for God, you know, the existence of God is then at that point relegated to probability. And that's precisely what we see in the apologetic of Dr. Turek, uh, the apologetic of, of uh, William Lane Craig and others like him. Um, the existence of God is relegated to probability, possibility, contingency. And, and even if the apologist believes that God most certainly exists and is the ground and necessary foundation for all things, the neutral approach will manifest a method of argumentation that does not assume those fundamental biblical presuppositions and cause the apologist's method to be inconsistent in his practice. So even if you don't hold to neutrality and, and autonomy, if your method implicitly assumes it, then there's an issue of inconsistency there, okay? Now, to be neutral in one's apologetic would require the believer 
to cast aside his believing presuppositions in order to approach the question of God in an, quote, unbiased fashion, right? And like fashion, the unbeliever asserts that he too will approach the question of God's existence with an open mind since he's committed to the following evidence, uh, to following the evidence wherever it leads. But um, Dr. Bonson, I think, warned us Christians of the myth of neutrality. And I think this is very, very important. Dr. Bonson pointed out that when we're asked to be neutral in our approach and to assume autonomous reasoning in our approach, he said that the unbeliever is not neutral and you shouldn't be either. This idea of simply following the evidence wherever it goes or wherever it points is not the issue because we need to deal with the presuppositional issue. We need to deal with fundamental authority, okay? In the presuppositional terminology, neutrality is called the myth of neutrality because neutrality really doesn't exist. No one's really neutral. They can't be, okay? So let's let's take the, the encounter between the, the Bible-believing Christian and, uh, and the skeptic who who claims that he lacks belief in God and simply needs to be shown the evidence. Now, it would appear that the skeptic is taking an unbiased and neutral position, position with respect to the existence of God. However, according to the Christian position, the Bible teaches that all men know that God exists and they're without excuse as, uh, as per Romans 1. Now, again, the skeptic may deny that there is a profound way in which he actually does know that God exists, but in his denial, his non-neutral posture is revealed in that he begins from the start with a rejection of the truth of the Christian position, which teaches that there is no one who, quote, lacks belief. This is very important, okay? Now, we need to be able to point these things out and not just to simply uh, swipe them under the rug. No one is neutral. No one is neutral. If the Bible says all men have a knowledge of God, whatever that knowledge is contained, such they without excuse, I'm not going to engage in the uh, with the unbeliever and argue in a fashion and assume that that's not the case. Because in that instance, I would not be arguing and thinking and reasoning in a way that's faithful to, to Scripture. Okay? So I think the questioner here points out something very important, the assumptions of neutrality and autonomy with regards to man's ability. And of course, Dr. Turk points to his book, Stealing from God, which, which by the way, I highly recommend. It's a very, it's a very good book. I honestly am saying that I'm not trying to be, you know, you know, overly, you know, respectful and nice. No, it's a great book. You should, you should pick it up. Okay. Um, but the way Dr. Turek appeals to the presuppositions is not the same way the presuppositionalist will. Okay. Um, and this is not the case of Dr. Turek using presuppositionalism. He uses presuppositions as an evidentialist, not as a presuppositionalist. I had this issue when I had um, Dr. Hugh Ross uh, come on my show. Uh, Dr. Ross and Jason Lyle had a, uh, a debate slash dialogue on my show. It was a great episode. You guys should check it out if you haven't checked it out already. Um, but there was an issue here where um, uh, Dr. Ross said something to the effect that sometimes I'm an evidentialist. And sometimes I'm a presuppositionalist. And that's that's simply not possible. You cannot dip in and out of methodologies and be consistent, okay? Remember, when the presuppositionalist appeals to evidence, that does not mean they are being evidential in the methodological sense. And when the evidentialist or the classicalist appeals to presuppositions, that is not the same as them adopting for a time presuppositional ism. 
since a classical apologist and an evidential apologist will often appeal to presuppositions. The appeal to presuppositions is not what makes you a presuppositionalist, right? There's, there's a big difference there. So it is very important to keep these things um, in mind, all right? Let's, let's, let's continue a little bit more. That's what Paul does. He starts with God on, on Mars Hill in Acts 17, and he says, uh, I see an altar to an unknown God here. Let me tell you who that unknown God is. But the presuppositional assertion. And who is that unknown God? Who is that unknown God? Who is the God that the Apostle Paul appeals to? Okay. Um, does he appeal to a theistic general God? Or does he appeal to the one who has appointed Jesus Christ to be judge over everyone? Who will judge both the living and the dead? Right? So, uh, whereas Paul starts with God, he doesn't start with God in the same way the classicalist um, seems to, uh, you know, put forth their their methodology, in, in my my humble opinion, okay? I, I, it feels weird, um, but I, I have to keep saying this over and over again. I so respect Dr. Turek. I think God is using his ministry. Um, as, as I said before, God can strike a blow with a crooked stick, okay? And I too, I too am a crooked stick. I don't have all this stuff you know, down and um, all the philosophy behind it. I'm sure that, you know, if I were to sit down with Dr. Turek and 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 uh, talk about apologetic methodology, he'd probably bring up some points where I have to be like, you know what? I have to go home and think about that, you know? Or someone like Dr. Richard Howe. Um, again, I disagree with him, but um, he's a brilliant guy and I, I like to learn from these folks. So I, I'm definitely not saying this in a way that, um, you know, me, is, is meant to be disrespectful in any way or anything like that. Listen, the, the Christian community, the Christian community, okay, is a mixed bag in terms of how God uses us, right? We're not perfect. We're broken people. We're trying to understand scripture and how these things connect together. And we come off on different sides of the spectrum. But our prayer is in a sense for unity in that even in the midst of our, our important diversities, that God's glory is still manifested um, we are still conducting ourselves in a way that is honoring to Christ. And I think folks like Dr. Turek, Dr. Craig, and others within the um, classical tradition, I do, I think, do uh, very, um, very good, very well. Excuse me. All right, let's, let's continue. Assertion that you have to assume the Bible's true in order to, to prove it just seems so circular to me. Now, again, maybe I'm missing something, but I think Jesus was an evidentialist. How do I know? Because when a representative of John the Baptist came to him and said, are you the real Messiah or should we wait for somebody else? Jesus didn't say, well, just have faith. Just believe. What did he say? Look at the signs. Look okay. Look, look at that. Okay. There, there we go. There we go. Okay. That caught my attention. Jesus is an evidentialist because when they, uh, what Jesus pointed to the evidence, he didn't just say, just believe. As though that's what the presuppositionalist is saying. Right. So so the evidentialist is pointing to the evidence and the presuppositionalist is just saying, just believe that's fideism. Just believe that's not that's not the presuppositionalist claim. Right. We appeal to evidence because we think everything is evidence for God. Everything. Everything is evidence for God. Everything bears his his fingerprints. Right. It points to the creator, the one and only creator who is blessed forever. Amen. Okay. So um, Jesus was not an evidentialist in the sense that um, 
he assumed neutrality and autonomy with regards to man's reasoning capacity, right? Because he too would have believed that God and himself comes with an authority that is never validated by something more ultimate than himself. Okay. So again, there's a lot of issues uh, in this perspective. This is a Q&A. So uh, I'm sure there are longer discussions that Dr. Uh, Turek has on the topic, which, um, you know, if someone has a video link, I'll, I'll check it out um, and, and give it a listen. Um, but that's it for the main content of, of this uh, response. I hope some of my insights were helpful. Um, I do apologize if some of my words are not as philosophically precise as, as some of the people who might be listening. Um, there are some people who are far more philosophically astute than I am, um, uh, and I'm still learning in a lot of ways. Uh, but that's just I just wanted to share my thoughts uh, with regards to this short video clip. Now, without further ado, let's take some questions from the chat. All right. Um, here we go. I feel guilty today because... Um, I cheated on my, my, oh, I have to be careful. My third love, okay? God, family, and coffee, okay? Instead of having real coffee, the drink of the true apologist who stays up late at night and live streams and studies and blah, 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 I had decaf tonight. Ugh. Okay, so, but I have, I, I, I'm still energized. I'm still energized. I'm ready to go. Um, hopefully, um, I can be able to help out with some of these questions. If I don't know the answer, I'll let you know. So uh, I have no problem saying saying that. All right. So let's see here. Okay. So here's a question. Okay. Regarding falsification, um, I get why you and others say tag is unfalsifiable. But would you agree that there is a sense in which tag is falsifiable? Even Bosterman uh, says in his book on page 158 that uh, I have to check the, the reference there. Um, I don't know uh, what Bosterman's view is um, on that, but I would say if I were to use hypotheticals, um, it could be falsified if you can ground knowledge and intelligibility within a worldview that's not the Christian worldview, <laughs> right? That's the claim. The proof of the truth of the Christian worldview is that if it weren't true, you couldn't prove anything at all. Basically, what we're saying is that the Christian worldview provides the necessary preconditions for intelligible experience, knowledge, or, or whatever. Um, and the way the unbeliever should respond is say, well, I don't have a Christian worldview, and here's how I ground those things. And there you have the conflict of worldviews. You have the conflict of those perspectives, and that's precisely what the transcendental argument wants to bring out. I want to present the Christian worldview, the circle, the system. I want to present that from the Christian perspective and show how it answers these fundamental questions and hence provides the necessary precondition for intelligible experience. And I want the unbeliever to lay out his case. I want him to do that, right? So, so if, if he thinks he can falsify the Christian worldview, I would say he can't, but he's welcome to try. And that's why we have the, um, the apologetic interaction. Okay, but within my worldview, there is no possibility uh, above God, and hence I could never say it's possible to falsify God because He's the ultimate. But if if you wanted to say kind of um, in principle, I suppose if they could successfully do this, but I think the history of philosophy has bore out that that is not something that is a very optimistic um, uh, an optimistic endeavor to pursue. Um, I think that unbelieving worldviews. Uh, 
definitely have internal issues, especially with leading to things like solipsism and different forms of skepticism and, and just are not able to ground, um, you know, uh, truth, knowledge, uh, science, uh, philosophy, history, all, all these things like the Christian worldview can. Now, again, I'm making the claim, but obviously that's going to have to be bore out in, a, in an, a fruitful interaction. Okay. Hope that makes sense. Okay. Let's see here. All right, here we go. Uh, it's a statement. The transcendental proof for Christianity sufficiently overturned, even if one alternative position is viable on its own terms. Yes, on its own terms. Uh, but that's precisely what I already said at the beginning there. Okay, so let's see here. There's the same, same individual. As a Christian, I don't believe tag can be disproven. But couldn't we still say it is falsifiable in theory? Oh, I, I think I just addressed that. Okay, there we go. Let's see, let's see. Hmm. Good morning from the Philippines. Good morning. <laughs> Nighttime over here. Uh, let me scroll through. Okay. Here's a question from Plantiga's Bulldog. Uh, you know what it is? How about that open theism? What are your problems with open theism? And more specific than it's not biblical. Well, um, I, I'm, I'm going to stick to my guns and say that's my main problem with it. It's unbiblical. It has a false conception of the nature of God's knowledge. Okay. That is precisely, I mean, again, I think our, our, our commitment to scripture is vitally important here. I would, I don't, I don't have any qualms about saying, well, because it's unbiblical, because that's precisely why I reject it. It has a fault, a faulty view of God's, the nature of God's knowledge. Okay. Um, because I believe the Bible does teach that God knows the future um, and God knows the sorts of things that open theists say that he doesn't. Okay. And I think that that can be demonstrated uh, biblically and has been done so um, in various um, literature that folks would might, might be interesting to uh, might be interested to uh, check out. I think John frame wrote a book on open theism um, that I thought was pretty good. I might have it somewhere around here. Let me see here. Maybe I'll, I'll look for it later somewhere around there. Okay. All right. Let's see here. Plantigas Bulldog. I love that name. That's so internetish. <laughs> Everyone on the internet has some interesting names. All right. Let's see here. Is that a question? Is that a question? Are you some authority general trash? Yeah. Uh, Martin, uh, Martin Luther, not the Martin Luther, uh, but Martin Luther says many of Turek's arguments are amazing when they are presuppositional. Um, yeah, again, I don't think you could jump in and out of the methodologies, but when he argues in, in what seems to be very presuppositional-ish, I think, yeah, he does present really great arguments. That's why I highly recommend, uh, his book, Stealing from God. It's, it's, it's a great book. So folks should definitely check it out. All right, let's see here. Um, is this a question? I see. Okay. No, there's no labeling of the question. Yeah. Okay. No, that's not a question. Let's see here. Hmm. <laughs> I don't see. Come on, guys. You guys could ask more questions than that. Let's see here. <laughs> I don't have enough evidence to be an evidential. <laughs> I love it. 
That's good. All right, here we fi finally, finally got a question. Here we go. Here we go. Okay. So, uh, is it possible to reject natural theology whilst maintaining full adherence to the confession? Um, I, I, to be perfectly honest, I don't know uh, the ins and outs of the confession. Um, regrettably, uh, my church experience, I have not been tied very much to a confession. I loosely hold to the London Baptists on a personal level. Um, and that's something I definitely, um, actually, I have been thinking about recently, something I need to be more intentional about connecting with uh, the confessions and really getting a grasp as to um, what it says with regards to these issues. So um, I don't know um, the issue of rejecting natural theology as it relates to the confession there. So I do apologize. Okay. Let's see here. Is this a circularity? Is this a problem, brother? Which authority are you appealing to when you make assertions? Would be a good question to ask him. Yes, that's right. We're always appealing to an authority when we make assertions. And if the authority is not God and his revelation, then it's going to be some other authority, right? Um, and that's very telling where your ultimate commitments lie. And of course, as a presuppositionalist, we want to identify those commitments and show the weaknesses of it, and then hence show the strength of the Christian ultimate foundation. And that's Literally what you do when you're in the, um, the, um, the, the engagement of worldview versus worldview. All right. Uh, Jacob asks, have you read Aquinas Summa Theologica uh, Prima Pars? No, I have not read anything of Aquinas. Um, you probably will stop listening to me and say, I can't believe you haven't read Aquinas. Listen, I want to read Aquinas. I just don't have time to read Aquinas. Okay. I'm so busy. Being a father of three little kids, being a full-time teacher, and then doing this when I catch the time, it it does damage to my ability to read a lot of the things that I want to read. So uh, regrettably, no. Um, I have read bits and pieces of Aquinas. I know enough that if someone says I'm Thomistic in my approach, I kind of know where they're coming from. Uh, but it's definitely something I, I would love to... Um, <laughs> spend more time uh, with. Okay. Let's see here. Okay. All right. So Dr. Bonson to one of his students uh, says, so it all comes down to which authority you decide to hold on to, right? Yes, that's precisely right. Everyone has an authority. The person who says they have no authority has an authority. Okay. It's going to either be their own rational capacity. Maybe they're, you know, if they're an empiricist or a rationalist, they're going to have some philosophical foundation that, that, that will be self-attesting within that system. Okay. Whether they acknowledge it or not, your job as a presuppositionalist within the apologetic encounter is to expose that and to show its self-refuting nature. Okay. All right. Let's see here. Okay. Here's another question. The Kyperian Berean. Okay. Uh, not sure if you've covered it already. How do we as presuppers use evidence in an apologetic approach? Also, have you read Van Til's Christian Theistic Evidences? Okay. Uh, good question. Um, I have not read um, uh, Van Til's Christian Theistic Evidences in its entirety. I've read portions of it, um, which is a good book, but I think a better book that's more manageable. If you can get your hands on it, I might even be showing you something that you can get on the Christian black market. If that's a real thing, this book right here, Van Til and the use of evidence. If you could find it on a PDF or something, it's a tiny little book, but it is an excellent resource uh, to talk about how to use evidences within a presuppositional uh, framework. And so the answer to the, the question 
how would a preceptor use evidence um, in an apologetic approach is that you use evidence within the context of a consistent biblical worldview, acknowledging the proper sources of authority in the way that you present the evidence. Okay. I'm a presuppositionalist, but I have written out the Kalam cosmological argument on a napkin at a party. I was uh, at a party. Uh, it was me and some other guy who had the terrible uh, job of watching the kids play while all the adults were were talking in the kitchen. So I'm I'm here sitting on a couch. There's a complete stranger. Another guy's around the same age, um, and we were watching kids play in a living room. And he says, "Say so. So what do you do for a living?" I'm like, "Well, I'm a teacher, and I'm also a Christian apologist." And he says, "Well, what's that?" And the conversation started. And when we began to talk about evidences for God. I brought up the Kalam cosmological argument and more issues of morality and things like that. Presuppositionalists are allowed to use these. As a matter of fact, Van Til himself did not reject the use of many of the traditional proofs. He just thought they needed to be reformulated in such a way that did not compromise our biblical commitments. If you can talk about cosmological arguments, teleological arguments, axiological, you know, the moral arguments, things like that, if you can do that in such a way that is consistent with your presuppositional commitment to the truth of God's word and his revelation, then go for it. I think that's an, a, a, a really, um, you know, a really good way of going about it. Hey, listen, when we're engaged in conversation with people, I'm not always talking about transcendental arguments. If you are an internet apologist, that's a different kind of apologetic than if you are doing apologetics within the context of conversation with someone. Okay, the average Christian is not doing apologetics on the internet. A lot are, okay, a lot are, but many Christians aren't. And so when we equip people to defend the faith, we want to be careful to cater um, how we equip them to the specific context in which they find themselves. So when I'm talking to the person on the street or I'm talking to some young person or whatever, I rarely am bringing up transcendental necessities and, you know, presuppositions and things like that. One of the things <clears throat> that you want to try to do as an apologist is master the method, okay, which, which I would call the biblical method of apologetics, master the method, and then dress the method with the language of the common man and use that within your day-to-day -day interactions. I mean, look at Cornelius Van Til's work. I mean, his work is very philosophical, very theological, but that's because his um, interactions required him to learn the language of the philosophers. And so he interacted with them in that way. But we're not all interacting with the philosophers. We're interacting with, with family members, people at work. We need to learn to um, master the method, a biblical approach of apologetics, and then dress the method with the language that fits our context uh, context, so that we can be all things to all people, that we are able to reach people in our community for Christ. Now, this is, this is important, and I don't want to get all preachy here, but this is so important. You need to be very, very careful in being stuck in the intellectual clouds of apologetic study. Eventually, you're going to have to come down from those clouds and actually talk to someone, okay? And, and, and you're talking to someone who is made in the image of God and needs to hear the gospel. So you need to know how to make those transitions from the intellectual rigor of talking about transcendentals and universals and all that to the average person. Because ultimately, the task of apologetics is not to show the person how smart you are. 
The task of apologetics is to honor God and share the gospel with people who need to know Jesus. I think that's very, very important. All right. Let's, uh, there we go. Thoughts on the, okay. Uh, thoughts on the proslogion. Uh, if you're talking about um, the ontological argument with regards to Anselm's formulation of it, um, I have not read, I've read the argument in the proslogion, if I'm getting the book correct. I mean, I'm disappointing a lot of people. I I'm often told that I'm very well-spoken. And so it gives the impression that I'm super educated. And I, I am educated, okay? I do know what I'm talking about. But I haven't read all of the great, you know, apologists and philosophers of the past. I've had snippets here and there, and I've been able to make do with what I have. So apologies, I haven't read the proslogion in its entirety, but I did, if, if it is Anselm's work and it's it's referring to the, um, the ontological argument, I have read the ontological argument. And if you're asking me, what do I think with regards to that argument, if it's valid, um, in my understanding, I do think it's valid. I think there's something to that argument. Um, and there perhaps is some use for it. Um, it's just that me personally, I don't tend to use the ontological argument when I'm interacting with folks. Okay. I hope that's not way off. Okay. Maybe someone give me a thumbs up if I, if I got that right. The ontological argument, proslogion. Okay. It's been a while. It's been a while. All right. Okay. Let's see here. I hope my answers are, are helpful. Let's see here. Now, see, see, it's questions like this. How does the baptism of infants maintain consistency with the regulative principle? <laughs> I don't know. I, I'm actually Baptist in my theology, so I don't actually hold to infant baptism. Again, probably going to lose a couple <laughs> of my Presbyterian friends. Um, how could I hold to this position? I am friends with a man who knew Bonson personally, and he tried to convince me of infant baptism in his office. He's a very bright guy. He actually debated, my friend actually debated Dr. James White on this very topic, okay? Um, his name is Pastor Bill Shishko, awesome guy. Um, he is a part of the, the OPC, the Orthodox Presbyterian Church, and he debated James White on the topic of infant baptism. And I think, in my opinion, out of, out of all the debates that Dr. White had on that topic, Pastor Bill Shishko was probably the better of his opponents. But at the end of the day, I wasn't convinced. And so I don't hold to infant baptism. All right. Okay. There we go. Let's see here. Moving along. Get to scroll through some of the comments. So please be, uh, let's see here. Not a question. I sent the video to Cameron. Lane Craig, Peter Hitchens, Eric Matitix, Peter Schiff, some of the atheists like Spanaker and a few others. I can't recall at the top of my own. Well, I don't have Twitter, so I wouldn't know. All right, let me see here. Okay, there we go. Yes, yes, I do shout outs. Hello, Jordan. How's it going? <laughs> Hope everything's well. All right, moving along. Okay, that's that's it. Uh the Norwegian needs to discuss it. Uh, and then we have last point here. Uh, will you have the Norwegian noose on to discuss orthodoxy? Since Hank told you himself, he probably wasn't the best person for you to go to. Um, yeah, that's something I would think about. Um, I, I, I definitely want to um, organize a debate. Now, the reason why I want to organize a debate is because I learn, maybe you can relate to this, I learn through conflict, okay? 
I learn more through conflict of ideas, arguing it out, working it out right there and then, than sticking my head in a book, especially because I don't have time to read as many books as I'd like. Debates are very helpful to me because I do have enough background knowledge to kind of know where everyone's coming from. So I was interested in organizing a debate between uh, Jay Dyer and Dr. James White. And I had reached out to Dr. White and he had expressed to me that he would be interested, um, although nothing solidified, he just said in passing he would be interested in doing something like that. Um, we'll see. I'll try to touch base with him. I know he's trying to set up his own debate studio and things where he can do, uh, you know, he's doing a bunch of things over there at Alpha and Omega. Um, so hopefully um, once he says, yeah, I wouldn't mind doing that, I'll reach out to Jay and we'll try to set something up and we'll get a, an interesting and I think hopefully a very fruitful and beneficial um, interaction, debate, dialogue on the issues of um, orthodoxy or maybe, you know, sola scriptura or something like that. So um, definitely um, something I want to do in the future. Okay. Um, let's see here. Somebody who leans heavily in the direction of free will doctrine going to be open to precept. Um, yeah, that, that, that's a, you see, that's a really good question. Okay. That's a good question because it really touches on the issue of the relationship between presuppositional methodology and reform theology. You have to understand something that when Cornelius Van Til developed um, the presuppositional method, okay, um, he did it in a way so as to be consistent with a reformed understanding of, of God, man, things like that. Um, so Van Til had in his writings his views of, of uh, from the Calvinistic perspective, um, with regards to God's decree, right? And uh, versus views that hold to kind of a libertarian view. So th there might be a connection there. Uh, this is a question I want to pursue a little bit more. Um, but people who tend to be more on the libertarian free will side don't tend to be presuppositionalist because there are some inherent philosophical and theological commitments that go along with that. Um, but it depends who you talk to. I know there has been an increase in... Eastern Orthodox folks uh, utilizing a presuppositional approach, whether they're doing that consistently, I think is an, an interesting topic to pursue. Okay. Uh, but again, um, that would be a topic that would require a little bit more uh, detail in laying out. All right. All right. Well, um, I have to teach tomorrow and I don't want to lose my voice. So I hope, and I genuinely hope that this episode has been um, fruitful, informative, um, I, I'm hoping that you guys are enjoying the content. Uh, my, my hope and my dream is to one day do this full time. Uh, so, so hopefully, um, you guys, uh, can share this video, put the content out there and maybe, maybe this is something I could, um, uh, kind of devote more time to, and maybe be able to answer some of the questions, uh, that I wasn't able to answer due to my, my own ignorance. So, um, so uh, as a favor, if, it, if it's okay, I, I have no qualms about asking, but um, if you enjoy the content, please share these videos on your social media pages and all of the episodes um, uh, go onto the Revealed Apologetics podcast. So if, if you enjoy the content, write a positive review um, on iTunes. I'd greatly appreciate that. Um, also, um, Revealed Apologetics will be coming out with a website. Okay. And it should be launching in a couple of weeks. 
All right. So I just want you guys to uh, be aware of that. I will give uh, an announcement with regards to that and um, a bunch of other stuff as well. I'm still writing my book, the Presup Answer book. That's going to take a little while because of just the busyness of everything. But um, I just want to let you guys know, those who take the time to listen to these videos, um, I greatly, greatly appreciate you. I, I appreciate the respectful interaction in the comments. And so um, if I've said anything to misrepresent anyone's views, I apologize. I'm just sharing my two bits uh, with regards to this topic that I think is, is important. Um, and with that, that's it for this episode. Please stay tuned for Saturday with Doug Dalma to talk about the philosophy and apologetic methodology of Gordon Clark. All right. And of course, if you want to support Revealed Apologetics, um, show me some love with those super chats. Uh, definitely would appreciate those. Um, and uh, looking forward to connecting with you guys in the future. Take care and God bless. Bye-bye. Thank you very much for listening to Revealed Apologetics. If you have any questions that you would like me to answer um, on one of our podcast episodes, please feel free to send in your question uh, at revealedapologetics at gmail.com. Thank you.